I'm Pastor Daryl Curtis, and you're listening to the 50th part of my sermonic review of the biblical design of gender, in which my point is that in the wedding vows, the vow to love, honor, and cherish comes before the vow of fidelity. The avoidance of arguing and strife is that which love, honor, and cherishing is all about. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. Good morning on this seventh day of the month of November in the year of 2010. Uh, Coming up to the end of the year, uh, we'll be... Coming up on Thanksgiving soon, followed by Christmas, and then New Year's, and then it'll be 2011. Well, our lesson for this morning is a continuation of our sermon series on the biblical design of gender, and this is the 50th part of that series. The text this morning is in the 25th chapter of the book of 1 Samuel, and 18 and 19 verses, which read as follows. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five seers of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her servants, Go on before me, see I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. God bless the reading of his word, and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit, and for his ability to explain your word. So, Lord, we ask you that you would give us the words to say, and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness, and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, thank you very much for coming to hear our message for this morning. And before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds, so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. And our takeaway point in this series on the biblical design of gender is that God has designed man as the cooperative coalition of husband and wife so that man can successfully achieve the objective that God has given us to exercise dominion over the earth, developing wisdom and knowledge in preparation for further responsibility in our eternal life. Now, the female protagonist in our next episode is Abigail, the second wife of David, who was the greatest king of Israel. Now, David is the God-chosen successor of Saul, Israel's first king. Now, God called David to replace Saul because Saul, as king, persistently disobeyed God. And when Saul failed to obey God's instructions to command his army to destroy the Amalekites, 
God sent Samuel the prophet to tell Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22 and 23, so Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? For behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from becoming king, from being king. So in this passage of scripture, God makes it clear that he wants our obedience more than he wants our offerings and sacrifices. God is the divine supreme being, and God does not want to have a leader that ignores his authority. The Lord is the great shepherd of the sheep, and we at best are under shepherds whose job it is to follow the admonitions of the great shepherd. And I had a discussion with a lady this week that is who is successful in her chosen career. Her career success, however, has not translated to success in her romantic life, and her marriage ended in divorce. Her success in the workplace combined with her marital experience makes her leery of being involved with another man on a matrimonial level. However, she is a human female and wants the comfort of having a man. So she wanted to know the reason for marriage and why she needed to be married to have an intimate relationship. Well, I responded that it is intuitively obvious that marriage is not necessary to have a physically intimate relationship. In our society, people are shacking up all over the place. But if a person wants to have an intimate relationship of which God will approve, Marriage is the only method to achieve that objective. And the reason for marriage is given in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. And Jesus answered and said to them, Have you not read that he that made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then... They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. The second clause of Matthew 19 and 6 defines being one flesh as being joined together by God in a way that it is not legal nor right for us to separate. Using this definition, it is obvious that having sexual intercourse does not bond a man and a woman into becoming one flesh. If sex did, there would be no such thing as shacking up. And in our society, there's a popular mating ritual called hooking up, which is even less permanent than shacking up, which is not permanent at all. Shack ups at least know one another and make a conscious decision to share a domicile with one another. Hooking up is defined as sex with someone to whom you are visually attracted that you hardly know and for whom you have no permanent regard. Hooking up is the equivalent of anonymous sex, the act of changing sexual intercourse from intimacy into pure recreation. Hooking up is no more intimate than scratching an itch. 
And God does not want us to either hook up or shack up because of the design of man and woman. You may remember the title of our series, The Biblical Design of Gender. God designed men and women differently. Women have a hormone that chemically, meaning emotionally, bonds them to a man with whom they have sexual contact. Men have the same hormone, but in a diluted concentration so that men are not emotionally bonded by sexual contact. Men are actually only bonded by volition. Volition meaning a conscious intellectual decision to bond. And God instituted marriage because of the different bonding mechanisms between men and women. Without a volitional commitment, men generally do not bond to women. Hooking up is a subset of prostitution, albeit without payment, a masculine sport in which men enjoy the physical release of sex without having a bonded relationship with a woman. And women that participate in hooking up generally find themselves damaged by the process as the activation of their bonding hormones leaves them frustrated after the sexual experience if the man does not choose to continue the relationship past the sex. As a matter of fact, women will hook up with a man more than once because of their hope that the man will decide to become bonded. But this hope is generally postpone disappointment. And we see this in our society. There's a popular daytime talk show host that has made his reputation by publicizing paternity tests to settle disputes between hookup partners as to whether or not the man involved in the hookup is the biological father of the child that was produced. If sex bonded men to women, this show would have no participants. But since men are only bonded by volition, a man can, and often does, impregnate a woman with no regard for her or the child that he has created. And since a man's lack of bonding to a woman is by design, God commands marriage to establish paternity. If each woman only has one husband, bonded to her volitionally, there is no question of paternity. A man can be volitionally bonded to more than one wife, but a woman cannot be hormonally bonded to more than one husband. And in biblical examples of bigamy or polygamy, the man has more than one wife, but the woman does not have more than one husband. And this is by design. So in my discussion with the lady, I explained the reason for marriage. And she disagreed with my assessment, not because it was incorrect, but because she did not want to be married. Her position was like that of Saul, who wanted to be king, but not to obey God. And God told Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 22 and 23, so Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? For behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. And because of Saul's disobedience, 
God sent Samuel to anoint a new king, even as Saul was still serving. 1 Samuel 16, 1, 5, and 7, 11 through 14 records, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him for reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said to Jesse, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves with me and come to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was when they came that Samuel looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? Then he said, there remains yet the youngest, David, and there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So Jesse sent and brought David in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking, and the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah, but the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. And this distressing spirit from the Lord caused Saul to be angry with David, especially after the Spirit of God gave David the power to slay the Philistine giant Goliath, making David a greater leader in Israel than Saul. 1 Samuel 18:68 records, Now it happened that as they were coming home, when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. So the women sang as they danced and, sang, and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him, and he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul knew that he had lost the kingdom, that the Spirit of the Lord was no longer on him but David. Saul decided to kill David so that he, Saul, could thwart God and keep his kingdom. David's wife, Michael, who was also Saul's daughter, alerted David to the danger, and facilitated David's escape from Saul. 1 Samuel 19, 11, and 12 records, Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. And Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through a window, and David fled and escaped. Now David's skills were in two areas shepherding sheep, and leading military organizations. 1 Samuel 22, 1 and 2 tells us, David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Abdullam. So when his brothers and all, and all his father's house heard it, they all went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So David became captain over them, 
and there were about 400 men with him. So David created his own small army from the men in Israel that needed a leader and used his own small army to provide a protection service for Israel. The Philistines were still attacking the Israelites in various locations, and David and his men traveled around taking care of Israelite villages. 1 Samuel 23, 1-5 and 5 tells us, Then they told David, saying, Look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah, and they are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keliah. And David and his men went to Keliah and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a mighty blow and took away their livestock. So David saved the inhabitants of Keliah. So David protected the Israelites, defeated the Philistines, and took their livestock to feed his army. But Saul was still seeking David to kill him. David evaded Saul until one day Saul found out where David was. But on his way to capture and kill David, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself, and David was hiding in ambush in the cave that Saul chose. 1 Samuel 24, 4, 7, and 9, 11, 16, and 18 records, Then the men of David said to him, This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. David also arose afterwards, went out of the king cave and called out to Saul, saying, My lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, see, David seeks your harm? Moreover, my father, see, yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you. Yet you hunt my life to take it. So it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul that Saul said, Is that your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Then Saul said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. So Saul and David made peace because of David's benevolence, and David and his army continued patrolling Israel. 1 Samuel 25, 2-8 records, Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal, and the name of, the, uh, the name of his wife, Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was, the he was of the house of Caleb. Now when David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men, and David said to the young man, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name, 
And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Peace be to you, peace to your house, and peace to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. Your shepherds were with us, and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the time while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son, David. Now, Nabal and David did not have a prior agreement for the protection that David's army provided, but David's activities were well known in Israel, and Nabal should have recognized David's identity. Nabal should have at least inquired of his shepherds to ascertain David's contributions to his success. And David was a shepherd as well as a military leader. First Samuel 17, 34 and 35 tells us, But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. And David has trained his men to protect the shepherds in Israel, and it would have been good of Nabal to find out whether David contributed to his success. But Nabal, whose name means folly, replied to David's men harshly, as 1 Samuel 25, 10 through 12 records. Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David, and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men when I do not know when they are from? So David's young men turned on their heels and went back, and they came and told him all these words. Now David was not pleased by Nabal's answer and decided that Nabal would have to suffer the consequences since Nabal was not prepared to contribute for his protection. First Samuel 25, 13 tells us, Then David said to his men, Every man girded on his sword. So every man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went with David, and 200 stayed with the supplies. And David had no plans to negotiate a price with Nabal. 1 Samuel 21, uh, 25, 21, and 22 says, Now David had said, Surely in vain I had protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him. And he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so, and more also, to the enemies of David, if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. Now David was one of those leaders that does not get mad. David gets even. Nabal was in danger, but Nabal's life was saved because one of his servants spoke to his wife. First Samuel 25, 14 through 17 records, Now one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messages from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them, but the men were very good to us. And we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both by night and day, 
all the time we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know and consider what you will do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his household, for he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. And when Abigail was informed that David provided security for Nabal's shepherd, she had the intelligence to share the bounty with David. Jeremiah 22 and 13 says, Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by injustice, who uses his neighbor's service without wages and gives him nothing for his work. So Abigail overrode the ignorant opinion of her husband. 1 Samuel 25, 18 and 19 records, Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five seers of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her servants, Go on before me, see I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And Abigail did not only prepare an offering for David, but she prepared an apology for him as well. 1 Samuel 25, 24 and 25, 28 through 31 records, so, she, so Abigail fell at David's feet and said, On me, my Lord, let, on me let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make, uh, make for my Lord an enduring house, for my Lord fights the battles of the Lord, and evil is not found in you throughout your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life, but the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. And it shall come to pass, when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and has appointed you ruler over Israel, that this will be no grief to you, nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause, or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maid servant. You see, the people of Israel knew of that which the Lord was doing with David. The women sang that David was ten times more effective as a military leader as was Saul, and the population knew the outcome of the meeting between David and Saul at En Gedi. When Nabal heard the name David, he should have recognized, but Nabal did not, so his wife saved his life. And when we evaluate the speech of Abigail to David, we see that she takes full responsibility to, for the disrespect shown to David. She could easily have argued that there was no prior agreement between Nabal and David for protection, but she did not try to justify their position. Proverbs 15 and 1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger. 
And Abigail had the intelligence to answer David softly. James 3, 13 through 18 tells us, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For when envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is shown, sown in peace by those who make peace. And God tells us that our marital interactions are wise if our objective is to live peaceably with one another, if we are meek rather than being envious and self-seeking. There is really no place for angry arguments in marriage. Since the husband and wife are one and bonded together, they ought each seek the best good of one another, not angrily argue to get their own way. Ecclesiastes 79 tells us, Do not hasten in your spirit to be anger, angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. And the Bible tells us that anger in our marriages is caused by enviousness, self-seeking, and foolishness. Just think about the last argument that you had with your spouse. How could you have deflected the argument? Suppose you had just given your spouse his or her way. What would the negative consequences have been? Most things about which we argue would work out equally well regardless of whose idea we use. The reason that we argue is really only to get our way. It is instructive that Abigail did not argue with Nabal about his response to David. Why? 1 Samuel 25 and 25 tells us, Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. Abigail knew that there was no reason to argue with Nabal because his decision-making processes were foolish. So Abigail did not nag or argue with Nabal. She simply took care of the problem because taking care of problems was her job in the marriage. She didn't ask Nabal what she should do about David because she knew what to do and had the wherewithal to do it. So Abigail created peace. She didn't argue with Nabal, and she apologized to David. And by doing so, Abigail made herself extremely attractive to David, regardless of her looks. And when Nabal died, David found Abigail and married her. First Peter 3, 3 and 4 says to wives, do not let your adornment be merely outward arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty 
of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Oh, for the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Not only is the gentle and quiet spirit precious in the sight of God, but a gentle and quiet spirit makes a husband love his wife. In the wedding vows, the vow to love, honor, and cherish comes before the vow of fidelity. The avoidance of arguing and strife is that which love, honoring, and cherishing is all about. A marital home is not designed to be a battling station, but a place of peace, prayer, and love for both husband and wife. In Ephesians 5, God tells wives to submit to their husbands and husbands to love their wives so that husbands and wives can love one another and sustain their marriages. Men bond to women volitionally, and a healthy man will be dissatisfied with a woman who does not volitionally agree to follow his instructions. Women bond hormonally, and a healthy woman will be dissatisfied with a man that does not love her and treat her as though she is the most important thing on his agenda. That's why I buy my wife flowers almost every week, and when we go dancing, I only dance with her. So the commandments in Ephesians 5 are given to us to instruct us as to the proper way to fulfill the biblical design of the genders. The malevolent forces in the world encourage women to argue and fight with their husbands, to not submit to their husbands based upon the excuse that their husbands will run over them if they submit. But the malevolent force is the reason for the high divorce rate, because if a woman refuses to keep her vow to voluntarily submit to her husband, her husband will eventually refuse to keep his vows and will abandon her. As Red Fox once said, show me a wife who won't, and I'll show you a neighbor who will. Now, the woman of whom I spoke earlier had a divorce experience that has made her leery of marriage, and she wants to shack up to avoid submission and, an in, and a financial entanglement, but basing a relationship on emotion rather than commitment is a losing proposition. Emotions change because of internal or external stresses, and people need the volitional commitment of marriage to ride out the storms of life. If the two remain two rather than becoming one, it's just a matter of time before the devil can throw something sufficiently negative at the two of them or sufficiently enticing at the two of them that one or both of them will no longer see the benefit of maintaining the informal shack-up relationship. And the reason that marriage is a commitment for better or for worse is that in every marital relationship, the for worse part is coming. And we need the resolve of commitment during the for worse part. Matthew 26, 39 tells us that this is even true of Jesus. As it says, Jesus went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. 
Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus Christ was volitionally committed to his mission. And although he voiced his reluctance to suffer the cross of Calvary, Jesus vocalized his commitment to God by his vow, not as I will, but as you will, just as we vocalize our commitment by our marital vows. And Jesus Christ on the cross kept his commitment to his father. Keeping the commitment to love, honor, and cherish is the key to marriage. Husband and wife must say to one another, not as I will, but as you will. Husbands must give themselves to show their loves for their wives, and wives must submit themselves to their husbands. We must give ourselves to one another, even as Jesus Christ, our example, gave himself to God. John three sixteen and 17 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have an everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So let us give ourselves for one another, even as Christ gave himself for us. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you this morning for this lesson, and we ask you, Lord, that you would help us to understand marriage in the way that you have designed. Let us not conform to the, uh, to the ignorant rules of the world, and let us not be afraid of one another, but let us resolve to rather love one another, even as you have loved us. Because you said in your word that by this all men will know that we are your disciples, in that we have love for one another. And help us, Lord, to love one another. Give us the mind and the heart that will allow us to be meek and to be loving and to be mild and to let the other fella have his way sometime, even in those things where we think that we are right. Help us to understand that most things can be done well many different ways and help us to show love to one another even as you have loved us. And now, Lord, we thank you for all that are in the house today. And we ask you, Lord, that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place and then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross arising from the dead on that Sunday. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus we pray. Man. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.